welcome to the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. For those of you who don't know, GTFO means get the F out. In this podcast, we will be discussing how to get the F out. How to get the F out of a bad situation, predicament, or something you want to flat change. I'll be interviewing individuals who have had to GTFO. Expect to hear stories of those who experience situations of despair, pain, and fear. And the only way to escape it was to GTFO. Through this podcast, I want to give you, the listeners, the power and courage to make life changes should you need to GTFO. Since the KKK first formed in 1865, white supremacist groups in the United States have propagated racism, hatred, and violence. Individuals belonging to these groups have been charged with a range of crimes, including civil rights violations, racketeering, and solicitation to commit crimes of violence. Nonetheless, white supremacist groups and their extremist ideologies persist in the United States today. According to Statista in 2020, approximately 838 of them are in existence. As a Jewish woman growing up in southern Louisiana, the visibility and impact of the KKK and other white supremacist groups bring no shock. I grew up with David Duke in my backyard, and hell, he ran for Louisiana governor in 1991. He did not win for the record. From my research and reviewing statistics, those who join such groups differ in backgrounds, families, education level, and socioeconomic status. Regardless of upbringing and history, most of these individuals who join seek a sense of belonging and purpose, therefore fighting for the same cause. That's the high overview. We know why someone may be inclined or pushed to join such an organization. So my next question here is, how do you get the F out? How do you leave one of these organizations? What does it take to break old thinking and habits to force you to change your personal opinion, purpose, and reality? Well, as you can imagine, my guest today has done just that. His story will fascinate you, frustrate you, and show you that finding growth and peace is possible. In the late 1980s and early 1990s, Arno Michaelis was a leader of a worldwide racist skinhead organization, a reverend of a self-declared racial holy war, and lead singer of the hate metal band Centurion, which sold over 20,000 CDs by the mid-90s and is still popular with racists today. Yet, single parenthood, love for his daughter, and the forgiveness shown by people he once hated all helped to turn Arno's life around bringing him to embrace diversity and practice gratitude for all life. After spending over a decade as a successful information technology consultant and entrepreneur, Arnaud is now a speaker and author of My Life After Hate, co-author of The Gift of Our Wounds, and very fortunate to be able to share his ongoing process of character development as an educator working with Serve to Unite. Founded as an ongoing peaceful response to the August 5th, 2012 Sikh Temple shooting in Oak Creek, Wisconsin, Serve to Unite engages students creatively with the global network of peacemakers and mentors in partnership with Against Violent Extremism, The Forgiveness Project, Search for Common Ground, and Parents for Peace. Arno's customizable keynotes and workshops leverage noble qualities of compassion, curiosity, and kindness to engage all human beings, building foundations for diversity, appreciation, and cultural agility. He also enjoys spending time with his daughter, art, music, and all forms of fearless creative expression, along with climbing things, being underwater, and the wonderful natural beauty of our planet Earth. You can learn more at mylifeafterhate.com. 
Arnaud, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very excited to have you on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Holly. I'm excited as well. Well, um, as I always ask in the beginning of our conversations, how do we know each other? And I'm going to answer that one for our listeners because it's kind of embarrassing, (laughs) but it's true. I stalked Arno on Google. I did. I was looking for someone who had a story, who had a GTFO moment that that he or she would share. And I found Arno and his story about leaving the white supremacist movement. And I'm really proud of you for that, Arno. And I also admittedly stalked you on the Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram, just so you know, just in case you're wondering. Well, and I'm glad we could schedule the podcast before the restraining order comes in. <laughs> oh, thanks. Okay, that was a good one. Thank they you. would show up Thank at my house in Dallas. They'd be like, ma'am, you cannot stop. <laughs> right. You have to go back to your life. Chill out. <laughs> calm down. Right. So thank you for not refiling, filing a restraining order. That's probably a good thing. Nope. Um Well, that's how we met, and we had a wonderful pre-interview, and I know that our listeners will appreciate what you're going to talk about today. Uh, But before we do that, will you tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you are today, what you're doing as an author, and all that good stuff? Sure. I I live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, in the the house I grew up in. I've spent the past uh, 11 years working in counter-violent extremism efforts uh, throughout the United States and internationally. And I, I'm an author. I, I'm a big fan of the phrase, fake it till you make it. And so I, mm-hmm. I did that until I published two books. And now I'm uh, doing it in the, the filmmaking space as well. And I, I also recently uh, became a restaurateur. And that, that's been a, a big focus uh, through the pandemic and, and uh, will be going forward. But um, now that things are opening up, I'm starting to do speaking engagements again and consulting and, and get back to some filmmaking projects as well. All that good stuff. All the things that make you you, right? All the things. Yeah, they, they do. Um, well, in the introduction, I spoke of your involvement as a leader in the white power movement at the tender age of 17. So I would like to ask you, how did life begin for you? And what got you involved in the movement? Yeah, that's a a very good question. And uh, I, having worked in counter-violent extremism, I I work with a lot of uh, who we call formers nowadays, as in former violent extremists. And I've worked with former white nationalists from all over the world, as well as former violent Islamists, uh, former Antifa, pretty much any kind of uh, violent extremist ideology, you name it. And I've, I've worked with a former member of that, uh, like myself. And, and a common thread for the bulk of formers is a really uh, distressed childhood. And in my case, uh, I, I'm a bit of an outlier in that I grew up in a nice house in a nice neighborhood, uh, very well-to-do suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My parents were together. They both loved me very much. Uh, they let me know that at every turn. But underneath the, the facade of uh, a very idyllic childhood, there was... Uh, 
emotional violence in my household that really uh, went back to my father's alcoholism. And I, I also, I always make the point that my, when, when you hear somebody as an alcoholic father, the first thing you think of is that they're abusive and things like that. And my father was not a mean drunk at all. He, he was a fun drunk. And, and what I mean by that is when dad was drunk, we were going to shoot guns in the basement and light off fireworks outside, which for a little boy is a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's been pointed out to me by, by good friends that that's not normal. That's the, that's not normal for most people to shoot guns in the basement and light off fireworks all the time. But um, my dad loved me very much, and and uh, the his the disease that he has is is uh, something he still struggles with today. But uh, it really put a lot of pressure on my mom, yeah. and it, it, his relationship with my mom was horrible the, the whole time. And he wasn't abusive to her either, but. Uh, we, we were living beyond our means and, and with my dad partying all the time, it really fell on my mom to keep the lights on and, and food on the table in our nice house in a nice neighborhood. So there were times when she was working two jobs and, and, uh, just really at, at the limit of, uh, her stress levels. And I, I grew up seeing my mother suffer and, and it hurt me. And rather than be a good kid and be like, hey, mom, I love you. How can I help? I just started to distance myself from her and from my dad and from all these other adults in my life who just thought I was this golden boy who couldn't do anything wrong. And I was so wonderful and bright and gifted. But as I I distanced myself from the people who loved me, of course, my suffering got worse and I started passing it on to other people, which is a a very common theme in life is that hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. And if, if you don't have a means of healthily of processing your suffering in a healthy way, it very often gets passed on to others. And so I, I started out as a bully in, on the school bus in kindergarten. I got a kick out of it. I, I really got a rush out of uh, like terrorizing not only other kids, but like parents and teachers and school principals. And uh, I quickly developed a, a habit for it. And it was very much the way that a, a substance abuse habit works. And <clears throat> as I grew older, my antisocial behavior needed to keep escalating in order to satisfy this, this addiction I had. And so I went from being a bully on the school bus to fights in the schoolyard to breaking and entering vandalism. When I was 14, I started drinking myself. That was very much just gas on the fire. And by the time I was 16, I was a full-blown alcoholic. I had been violent since I was a little kid. Hate was just another part of the rush. And and that's when I was exposed to white nationalism uh, through white power skinhead music. And, and the, what really attracted me to it most was that it really pissed people off. I, I, I was constantly looking for like the, the way to repulse society in, in the, the most uh, in, in a powerful statement. And uh, nothing repulses people like a swastika. Mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't ignorant as to why people were repulsed by the swastika. I, I had uh, read night in English class in my freshman year in high school. And 
I, I'd seen all the, you know, the newsreel horrific footage of, of concentration camps being liberated. And I, I knew all that had happened, but I never really sat and thought about the, the suffering behind it. And I, I never put myself in the shoes of, uh, Jewish people who were systematically butchered. And, and I just, I just saw it as a, another way to, to lash out and by associating myself with that swastika. And going back to the substance abuse model, it's it's a it's a good way to explain it. I've been an alcoholic myself. I, I drank profusely for 20 years. I quit uh, when I was 34 years old, 2004. And I also know people who have recovered from heroin addiction. And you'll hear a lot of times from heroin addicts that – they, there were times when they, they would steal things to support their habit, maybe even prostitute themselves, just do horrible uh, acts to, to satisfy their, their addiction. And they didn't feel good about it, but they didn't care, like as long as they got that fixed. And that's how my relationship with the swastika was and, and white nationalism is, is I didn't feel good about it from the get go. I knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong to hate people and hurt people, and it, that was like a deep inner knowledge. But it it, it all took a backseat to my my addiction to lashing out, and and so the the addiction is is really what drove me uh, to get involved in white nationalism. Right. What I hear you saying is that gave you that validation when you got the angry response from other people. You got a fix. When you were drinking, you got a fix. It was like a it was a pattern. Oh yeah, absolutely, and and it was I I, I should say also that um, you know another common thread for violent extremism and formers and what have you is uh, people are are looking for attention. They're they're like you said, they're looking for validation. Yep, they're, they're looking to feel like they matter. And for me, it was really kind of twisted in that as a child, like I said that. I was showered with attention and affection. I, I, it wasn't like I was ignored and I, I needed people to pay attention to me. I, I, but I think what happened was as I'm being told I'm this wonderful golden boy who is so special and, and great, but I was suffering inside. I, I kind of got it in my head to like, I'm not wonderful. And, and if you don't believe me, watch, watch what I do to this kid. Like, watch what I do to this school. Watch what I do to this society. Like, that was that was where it came from for me. So it, it still is. a it, it, It's all a self-image issue. And, right. and I really believe that all hate, like, stems from a, a, an inner hatred for oneself. But uh, that, that was how the dynamic worked for me. Well, you're, you're making me think of other questions. The first one is, so you... You feel like you weren't worthy of being the golden boy, Arno, and you got uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I, I think there was an element of that. Uh-huh. Uh, I <laughs> being the golden boy brings a lot of pressure. Yeah, uh, I I do recall like in, I think it was in third or fourth grade. I figured out that the reason they kept putting me in all the smart kid classes was because of the standardized tests. And so, uh, because I'm a gifted genius, I figured if I just tanked those tests that I, I wouldn't have to deal with the gifted classes. 
but I, I wasn't a genius enough to not make it obvious. And so they said, we know you tank the tests. Like, <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's kind of like self-sabotage. So you didn't have to. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's, I, I, I'm Arnold the, the fourth. Uh, Dad's the third. My grandpa was the second and so on. I never knew the first, but, but I heard stories about him. But I, I do – I have kind of like postulated that there's this Arno curse, which which is not exclusive to Arno's. I know a lot of people deal with this, but as far as me and my dad go, we're we're both pretty smart. We're both pretty charismatic. We and and our like hungover, half-assed efforts at whatever <laughs> we're doing is is typically like as good as a lot of people's best efforts. And what that means is it, it just sets you up to really like slack and party through life to where like, I, I don't have to really put any effort into this. So I'm just going to do everything half-assed. And, yeah. and uh, I, I, I think that even from a young age, I, I was definitely kind of working that angle. And, and um, I, I think my, avoidance of, of living up to my potential, like goes back to just what you're saying. Like, I don't, I don't think I was worthy of that. Right. It's interesting because everyone on the outside sees that you're worthy. It's, it's interesting to know what's going on. Um, that inner talk in your head, you know, and how it exactly. affects you, yeah. how it affects you. Um, before I move on to the next question, I have another one because you, you're really piquing my interest in, in your childhood. Um, did your mom and dad see what you were doing, Arno, with the drinking and um, skinhead activity? Did they see it? Did they recognize it? They, I, they, they didn't want to see it. Okay. <laughs> and, and I, okay. I don't think there's. It, I, I, I have a daughter that uh, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about as, as I talk about how I got out of the movement. But um, being a parent myself, it, it's hard to look at, at, uh, your child's issues and, and, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you have a child that's considered to be this gifted golden boy. And I, I the best way to describe it is, so I've written two books and, and my dad's read both of them. And my mom has only read the latest one. She couldn't read the first one, but, uh, both of them, when they read the books, are like, Oh my God, I had no idea it was this bad. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, yeah, and that's just a wee, wee glimpse. And like those books, as as raw and honest as the and deep as they go, still are just a, a, a little window into really the depths of how bad it got. Yeah. So I, I think a lot of it was just kind of denial on on their part. Um a, another factor is is that they were both struggling in their own right. And so it's, it's one thing if, if your life's going well and and you have a child who's having problems, it's another thing if your life is in shambles and then you have a child who's having all these problems on top of it. And so I I think all those things come into play. Um, (laughs) I have a younger brother and uh, I, by the time I was 14 my parents had just completely lost control of me and and they they were kind of they both deny this but i i had this feeling and i don't blame them one bit 
but they were kind of like, okay, let's just try to keep the younger one from really going off the rails. <laughs> so we don't have two kids who are completely <laughs> off the rails. And God. My younger brother's a lot smarter than I am. And he, he went off the rails a little bit, but nowhere near as bad as I did. Right. Right. They did the best they could. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, That's it, the bottom line yeah. is that throughout all this, they, they were doing the best that they could. And um, I, I think even before we talk about how I left the movement, I, I just always have to say that throughout my time, the, the darkest time in my life, the seven years I was involved in white nationalism, both of my parents uh, throughout just let me know they loved me and they weren't going to give up on me. And that, that was as huge of a factor as anything else in my turnaround. Well, it shows that you had a support system, you know. Yeah, I, I, I did. Absolutely. Yeah, you did. Um, thank you for explaining that to me, by the way. Like, it adds more color to your life and where you came from and who you were. Um, this intrigued me from our pre-interview. What were some of the principles that you were taught um, that you implemented in your daily life? As far as white nationalism? Yes, yes, because what you shared with me was all new to me. So I know the listeners will be intrigued as well. Well, the the it's interesting because racism and, and race are so front and center today. In, in the late 1980s, when I got involved, pre-internet, mind you, and pre-social media, which I think is a huge factor, <clears throat> but back then... I, I, when people would call me a racist, I'd say, yeah, I'm a racist. Um, I, I'm actually a racialist. And, and what that means is that every decision that I make is based on race. Uh, specifically, it, every decision would be, is it good for the white race? Hmm. And uh, a lot of people hear this and their first response is like, well, you know, white people this, black people that. But the, the, the bottom line is that white supremacy, white nationalism, all those things, the, the premise is not that white people are better or white people are superior. The premise is that there are white people. The, the premise is that there are white people and there are black people and there are brown people and, and that everything in society should be uh, arranged through that lens and, and that there's nothing that, that shouldn't be seen through that lens. So as a white nationalist race dictated the way that I thought every single day. And I specifically say race and not racism because race was created by racism. Uh, it's not like race was this neutral objective fact of life that racists came along and exploited 400 years ago Race was concocted by racists in order to perpetrate racism because racism can't happen without race. Go mm -hmm. figure. Mm -hmm. So th th that explains why white nationalists are first and foremost about race. It, it has to, race has to be an a priori factor in, in the way you see the world. And, and if it's not, you really can't get involved. As, you can't be a white nationalist if you don't see yourself as white. Like the, the, the steps to recruit a, a, a hurt, damaged kid into white nationalism, it, there's two steps. Step one is you brand them with an, a, a white racial identity. 
And, and in the late 1980s, um, most people who would be racialized as white didn't consider themselves white. That, that was like, I had to go through that step one when I'm recruiting. If I'm sitting down with this kid and I'm like, hey, you're a white man. He'd be like, really? I, I thought I was just John. Like, no, you're a white man. You're you're a part of the white race. And this is why we have to fight for the white race, because you're white and I'm white. We both have to fight for white people. And if, if you can't get them to buy into that, you can't take them to the next step, which is to make him feel persecuted because he's white. And, and if you can't complete both of those steps, you cannot bring someone into the white nationalist ideology. So everything I thought back then was about race, and, and it was also uh, driven equally by anti-Semitism. Yeah. The uh, white nationalist movement is a big tent. There are all sorts of variations within it. There are people who think that Jesus was a pure-blooded Aryan white man, which I found just as ridiculous back then as I do now. But uh, there's also people who believe in Odin and Thor and all the Norse gods and people oh, yeah. who are atheists. Yeah. But, but all of them are, are in complete lockstep regarding race, and they're also in complete lockstep regarding anti-Semitism. Uh, the anti-Semitic element of it is while, while you have, you're galvanizing yourself and, and your colleagues around race, you also have to have a con common enemy. And anti-Semitism throughout its history for thousands and thousands of years has been a process of, of seeing Jews as, as an other. Uh, and, and as Jews have been driven out of this place and driven to another place because of anti-Semitism, it just sets up this cycle where like, oh, okay, here's who are these people? They're strange. They don't worship like we do. They're other. Oh, and by the way, our crops failed this year. Whose fault would that be? And, and as, as ridiculous as that was in, in the 12th century or 13th century, it's equally ridiculous now where people are blaming COVID on Jews or, or blaming the economy. Okay, econ I haven't even heard that one. <laughs> Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Oh, absolutely! That's it's, um, it's it's so ridiculous, Holly. It's it's uh, and and it, and it would be comical if if it didn't ultimately like devolve in, into very uh, caustic violence. Yeah, let me just say that COVID is not funny, but it was comical that that has been a thought that the Jews caused COVID. Sorry, couldn't contain the outburst on that one. Um, no, I, I don't blame you. It, it is comical, but, oh but that's, God. That, it's an example that, you know, 1500 years ago, people were blaming Jews for the plague and, and for, you know, cows not giving milk or whatever. And here we are in the 21st century and people are blaming Jews for COVID oh. or, or their, or their favorite series getting canceled. Or <laughs> whatever, right. you know, it's always something. And, and the reason that is, is because it's so much easier to blame some shadowy, uh, un, some group that you don't understand uh, than it is to look inward and deal with the real source of the problems in your life. Mm -hmm. So when I was recruiting Joe Pissed Off White Kid, He's a 16-year-old kid in high school. He's angry because he doesn't have a girlfriend. Rather than say, hey, Joe pissed off white kid, 
why don't you try taking a shower once in a while and quit drinking every day and like go to school and make something out of yourself and, and, and make yourself into someone that someone that a woman would be attracted to. I would say, no, the reason you don't have a girlfriend is because uh, the Jews put Michael Jordan on all these billboards and TV ads to corrupt the minds of white women to think that uh, black men are the, 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 you know, the pinnacle of masculinity. And that's why you don't have a girlfriend. And, and as ridiculous as that sounds to any thinking person, to Joe pissed off white kid who's broken and traumatized and, and doesn't 16, have... 16, 16, right. their, their brain isn't developed yet. Exactly. I mean, and and they, they don't have the, the tools or the support system necessary right. to look inward and do that difficult personal work it takes to, to make your, the best version of yourself. It's so much easier to be like, oh yeah, Jews. Yeah, let's yeah, go. That's their fault. I don't have to think it, about my problem about my exactly, problem. Exactly. And I have exactly. a sense of belonging with other people who right, we all too. support the same thing. Yep. Um at, at, in all this time that you were involved in what you were ascribing to, when did you realize that that the white supremacist principles did not align with Arno? with you. I, I think I, I knew that all along and that was, uh, the, a huge factor in the exhaustion that ultimately led me out. But it, it, it was like a, an inner knowledge of my wrongness that was kind of affirmed and amplified by all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. As, as I mentioned, I, I knew it was wrong to hurt people and hate people. And there were times like as I'm punching someone where I have this inner voice to say, like, what the hell are you doing? What's wrong with you? Why are you acting like this? And I didn't have the courage to even acknowledge that voice, much less answer it honestly. And so I'm constantly trying to suppress it with alcohol and with white power skinhead music and, and with violence and surrounding myself by other broken kids. So that, that took a lot of energy to itself, but it, there were it was still all these other directions where I had to expend energy to maintain this like very pathetic and tragic lie of, of white nationalism. One of the, the biggest issues was I, I grew up a TV, film, music, sports geek. And, and I just loved all of those things. And I, I still love all those things today. And uh, what about my favorite examples was uh, during my involvement in the white nationalist movement, I had a, a few girlfriends and the last one I had ended up being the mother of my child. And she was uh, involved in the skinhead movement before I was, but by the time in early nineties, uh, she was getting burnt out by it. She kind of just wanted to be a normal person. And, and she worked in a bar and, and she had like glimpses outside of the, our little white nationalist box we had put ourselves into. And as she's working at this bar, she comes back and, and she says, you got, we got to watch this show Seinfeld. It's everybody at the bar is talking about it. And right away I'm like, rah, rah, Seinfeld, that's Jewish. Rah. It's that Jew you know, show. Right. Right. And so I, I just go off the rails about it, but she prevailed on me to watch it once. And I just absolutely fell in love with it. Like off the bat as, as did she. And 
and she worked on Thursday nights when uh, Seinfeld aired. And I would have to, uh, Holly, you're, you're like me, probably old enough to remember these things we had called VCRs. Uh, yeah. That were like Those the size of a, yeah, they were the size of a suitcase and they always blinked 12. And if you were really smart, like I was, you could get them to tape something off TV. Right. And so I had to tape Seinfeld for my girlfriend. Otherwise, uh, she'd be really upset with me. And I couldn't write Seinfeld on the spine of the tape because if that was up on our bookshelf when my white power buddies came over, it would uh, make me a traitor to the white race and complicit in the destruction of white people across the globe. And uh, so I, we, we put it on a tape that said Amber's second birthday party on the spine because we knew no one would ask to watch that. Right. So that's where we, we we hid our Seinfeld episodes, which in itself is pretty Seinfeldian. And uh, as my daughter and I call it now, we just call it Larry David. Oh, yeah. uh, it's, it's a Larry David situation, what have you. And I, 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 I can't believe that I felt like I felt guilty about that. Yeah. I, I felt guilty for enjoying a TV sitcom. Because of the the conditioning I had voluntarily undergone as, as a white nationalist, but Seinfeld being a an observational humor kind of show, it means that you know you see it Thursday night and then Monday you're at lunch and having, you're having a bowl of soup and you think of the soup Nazi and and you start cracking up and and you get a, a moment of joy that thanks to uh, Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld and everybody else involved in making that show. And and that happened to me as well. But then after I had that moment of joy, I would ask myself, well, does Jerry Seinfeld get to live in your whiter and brighter world? Uh, and, and if he does, does you think he's going to be very funny as you're exterminating all the other Jews? And, and the only answer to that is that I was absolutely full of shit. And, and that this whole ideology was, mm-hmm. and and that uh, it was all a lie, and and so Seinfeld, along with the Green Bay Packers, which were equally forbidden by the white nationalist movement, as well as any movie out Wait, of Hollywood. Why were, they, why were they the Green Bay Packers forbidden? Well, it was a bunch of black guys and a bunch of white guys on, on the same football team. They're, they're, that's that's a sin. Okay, you know it, that, you can't have that. And and interestingly. It's funny because I, I see this uh, this kind of theory come from the far left nowadays that says that like uh, sports are something to dumb down the masses so that they don't know that they're being oppressed, you know, so that so that they don't rise up and and smash the white supremacist capitalist oppressor and whatnot. And and interestingly, we had a very similar take on sports and TV and music as white nationalists in that. We thought that football and baseball, basketball were all, uh, of course, Jewish plots to uh, distract and dumb down the white race so that we could be more easily oppressed. And so it's, it's funny that you see these recurring themes from the two poles of, of the political spectrum that claim to be uh, in opposition to each other when actually they're, they're really mirror images of each other. Ooh. Okay, that's a that's an interesting breakthrough moment right there. Yeah, 
That's well, it, and it, it, so then it, all of this is happening, and then driven home. Really, the the hugest point of my exhaustion was that throughout my seven year involvement in hate groups, there were times when people who I claimed to hate treated me with kindness. Mm-hmm. There were times when people like a Jewish boss, a lesbian supervisor, Afro American and Latino coworkers refused to reflect my hostility as I was trying to provoke and instead treated me with kindness when I least deserved it, but when I needed it most. And in doing so, they were putting themselves in a position of power. They were refusing to uh, accept my rules of engagement in our interaction, which I wanted to be hate and violence and hostility and separation. And instead they said, I'm going to dictate the rules of our engagement to you. And the rules are compassion. The rules are kindness. The rules are forgiveness. And that, more powerfully than anything else, drove home how wrong I was, first of all, to believe in in the lie of race, to think that the color of my skin made me different than everyone else and better than everyone else. And uh, second of all, how wrong I was to... to, follow through with that and and let it turn into hate and violence. So it brought me to a point where in 1994, after having been involved originally in 1987, by 94, I was looking for an excuse to leave. And that Mm -hmm. came in a two-stage process. Um, Despite our shared love of Seinfeld, uh, alcohol and hate and violence is not a recipe for a healthy relationship between a man and a woman. So my girlfriend and I broke up, and I found myself a single parent to our 18-month-old daughter. And a couple months after that, after a concert my band had played, I I screamed in in white power bands, uh, a second friend of mine was shot and killed in a street fight. I I lost uh, my first friend in 1990, and in 94, another friend had been shot and killed. And by that time, I had lost count of how many friends had been incarcerated. So it finally hit me that if I didn't change my ways, death or prison was going to take me from my daughter. And I, I truly believe that had any of those elements we just talked about been missing, whether it's Seinfeld or the Green Bay Packers or my boss, Jack Cooper, who rather than fire me for wearing a swastika into his factory as a Jewish man, he said, ah, he's a good kid. He's just going through a phase. It, it, if it wasn't for all of those things combined with my parents' refusal to, to not give up on me and, and my daughter, uh, I, that second murder could have driven me further into the movement. And it could have driven me to a point where I was ready to, to commit a, a, an act of mass violence. So today, every single day, I am grateful that I am no longer that uh, miserable living a lie person that I was from 1987 to 94. And every day I'm grateful for all of those things and, and most grateful just for the human ability to, to be kind and compassionate. And so it's important to me now to do my best to, uh, first of all, exhibit those qualities myself. And I, I do my best and I, fail like everybody else <laughs> yeah i still get angry and i still you know i'm not perfect but i just kind of go right back to it and and remember that 
life is a practice and, and uh, the, the most important thing is, is just uh, to keep doing it. Um, and, and that's what really inspires uh, the work I've been doing for the, the past uh, 10 years or so and, and yeah. what I'll continue to do. You just perfectly let out your GTFO moment or moments, should I say, because it sounds like getting out was a, was a process. It was Seinfeld realization. Amber, another realization. I'm exhausted. Realization. Like right. people that you met, another realization. Like you were able to reflect and go, I'm getting the fuck out of here. <laughs> I mean, yep. I'm leaving. Exactly. I'm not, this exactly. isn't, this isn't who I am. Um, how did you leave? You told me a couple of days ago, but I would love our listeners to know about how you made that separation from uh, the white supremacists. Yeah, that's, um, that's an important part of the story. And, and it's, uh, I, I do a lot of corporate stuff nowadays, which I actually really enjoy. I, I think uh, business as a force for good is, is one of my favorite kind of trends nowadays. And I, I think a lot of businesses are really committing themselves to that. And, and it's a, a huge thing for society. And, and in the process of working with a business, a lot of times you talk about what's your organizational culture. Right. What, what's the culture of this business? At our restaurant, our, our culture is to feed people and connect people. And, and we don't care who they are. We don't care what color skin they have. We don't care who they vote for, who they don't vote for, who they pray to, who they don't pray to. All we want to do is feed people and, and have kinship with them. So with a, an organizational culture that's positive like that, it can really take everything to the next level, whether you're selling chicken sandwiches or widgets or whatever. But uh, for our, our white nationalist group, our organizational culture was hate and violence. Mm -hmm. And go figure, we didn't have the most functional organization. <laughs> so we, while, while we peaked at about 150 people in southeastern Wisconsin in like 90, 91 or so, um, very quickly these 150 people were fighting amongst themselves to the point where it, we we all hated each other uh, and, and we're, we're getting in physical confrontations with each other. So by the time I left in 1994, it was really just like me and the guys in my band and like a handful of other guys that we called the inner circle who were kind of around from the get-go. And all of us had young families. All of us worked like shitty, menial, minimum wage jobs. And, and we were kind of facing the realities of being young parents and paying the bills and being a grown-up. And, and it just doesn't leave a lot of bandwidth right. for something as, as stupid and self-destructive as, as white nationalism. So when I left, I basically told my guys in the band and I told my, my few other friends and, and some of them made like a half-assed attempt of like, oh, what about the white race and blah, blah, blah. And I'd be like, dude, I, I've, I've heard it. I've said it. I know the whole spiel. Like I, I'm not, I just don't buy it anymore. And you know, you don't either. And uh, even those guys were like, yeah, well, all right. <laughs> go, go do it. They're like, okay, you're right. Uh, we're gonna yeah. They're, they're kind of like, go do what so, you gotta do. And yeah. and um, many of those guys followed shortly after. Um, today, all of those guys have have uh, turned their lives around to one degree or another. 
um, pretty much across the board, everybody's, uh, you know, parents and business people and, and it just, you know, some of us has changed more ideologically than others, but um, everybody is, has really kind of dropped the focus on race, which is really like the key uh, to, to turning your life around. Um, so when I left, I didn't face a whole lot of blowback from uh, the guys I, I knew closely. Yeah. And the other thing that worked in my favor was uh, being a man of extremes. I went from extreme hate and violence of white nationalism to 18 months later, the extreme peace, love, unity, and respect of the rave scene uh, starting in, on the south side of Chicago. So here I am like 18 months removed from attacking people because of their skin color or because their perceived religion or, or sexual orientation. And I'm, I find myself on the south side of Chicago at four in the morning on Sunday, shaking my ass to house music with 3000 people of every possible ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, socioeconomic background you can imagine and loving every minute of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, that was a really, uh, again, a very transformative time for me. It was a huge part of my healing process and and making me who I am today. I still love the music. I uh, went out raging techno clubs in Berlin uh, a couple years ago. (laughs) Oh, well, there you go. Which was, yeah, it was a blast. Uh, But, but it was also one of the reasons why, no one would come after me because as far as they knew, I just fell off the face of the earth. Right. Like they, they're, you're not going to run into a bunch of white nationalists on the South side of Chicago at four in the morning on Sunday. Probably. So, uh, that, that, uh, that worked in my favor as well. And it really wasn't until I went public with my story in 2010 that I started to get a blowback from active white nationalists, which I, I still get here and there. And it's not a, you know, it's like email death threats. So I, I, I don't give it a whole lot of energy. I've never been the type of person to look over his shoulder uh, for better or worse. <laughs> and yeah. Not, yeah. Not about to start now because I, I got a lot of work to do, and and I, I'm, I'm just very mindful of, of what I expend my energy on, and so I, I, I need my energy to, to do the work I want to do, and therefore I don't, uh, don't give any of it to people who want to email me death threats. Right. No, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. Let them stew in their own anger and hate and whatever it is they can do. They doesn't need to go to Arno, not part of you anymore. Um, how do we move on as individuals in a society? <clears throat> you had mentioned forgiveness last week. A lot of this of, of moving on and evolving from this is about forgiveness. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, forgiveness is just, uh, I think, one of the most underrated and misunderstood aspects of, of human existence. Yeah, I, I'm very fortunate to be part of a wonderful organization called The Forgiveness Project, which people can find at theforgivenessproject.com. Yep. And it's just a collection of hundreds and hundreds of stories from all over the world, from people of every background, every situation you can imagine, and, and just their journeys uh, with forgiveness, which, uh, yes, there's common themes, but there's also a, a, it's a unique journey every time. And it's important to understand that forgiveness isn't something that can be prescribed. You can't, like, go to someone who's been through trauma and be like, hey, you need to forgive. Blah, blah. You know, it's, it's just not how it works. But what you can do is say, this is my experience with forgiveness. 
this is what forgiveness has done for me. And if, for people who need, who can really benefit from a forgiveness journey, it's hearing those stories can, that can get them thinking and say, hey, maybe this is something that I need to think about when there are times when I, I found it just unimaginable. And, and, and I say this, having colleagues in the forgiveness project who have had children murdered, mm-hmm. who have survived rape who have uh, lost limbs in terrorist attacks. Like it's, I was kind of intimidated when I was asked to be part of that project. Cause I'm like, I can't, I cannot even hold a candle to people like this. And, and I can't imagine going through what they've gone through. And I don't feel worthy of being mentioned in the same breath as, as they are. And, and Marina Cantacazino, the founder and, and director of the forgiveness project said, well, what about self-forgiveness? Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's that is a big deal. And for me, self-forgiveness is is gonna be a lifetime journey. Right. And and that every day I there there were times when every day I struggled with it. I, I think now I would say every day I work with it. And and I'm actually very glad that I'm I'm going through this process because it helps me uh introduce other people to the process also. Right. Uh, I, I work with a, a brilliant org called Parents for Peace. It's uh, parents, the number four, peace.org. And uh, we originally was, was founded by a family who, who lost a son to uh, violent Islamism. As he, he became a, a jihadi and he, he murdered an American service member. And they wanted to create a resource for families who were worried about a loved one getting involved in any kind of violent extremism. And more recently, uh, Parents for Peace has uh, introduced a toll-free hotline that people can call nationwide. Um, I, I'm chagrined I don't know it by heart, but I, I, it's right at the uh, top of <laughs> <laughs> website, uh, which I'm going to look up right now. <clears throat> And uh, we, we help individuals who, who uh, need help getting out of uh, hate groups, getting out of religious or political extremism. And uh, th- that's why self-forgiveness is so important, because if I'm hating myself for the harm that I've done, which I have spent many years hating myself, it's been a long, long process till I could get to the point where I don't hate myself and I can say, Hey, I'm actually a pretty good person and I'm doing the best I can. If I'm not there, I can't help somebody else. Right. They need you. uh, They need your help to do it. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, it's, and I didn't want to, I did not want to stop hating myself. There was years where I felt the only way I could honor the people that I've harmed was to hate myself. And, and it, well, you know, that may make some kind of poetic justice kind of sense. It, it, it tactically, it doesn't make any sense right. because it, it, it basically just, it, it, it uh, perpetuates the trauma you're going through, perpetuates your suffering. And when you're suffering and traumatized, you can't help other people who are suffering and traumatized. So this is a very practical and, and tactical uh, approach that I use to say, well, I have to forgive myself so I can get other people to the point where they can forgive themselves and stop hating other people and stop hurting other people. Right, because that's your purpose. You have to help other people forgive and heal, and you have to be healed, and you have to forgive to get to do the same. 
So exactly, and, and uh, I found that number. People can call one eight four 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 nine peace p e a c e, and uh, that that hotline is uh, manned, and we have a great triage team that uh, will get people the help they need, whether that's. Uh, AODA counseling, employment counseling, mental health, uh, and whatever they need to to get out of this uh, space of hate and violence, uh, we have uh, people who can make those connections. That's so I, I encourage anyone who's I encourage everybody to go to parentsforpeace.org and just to see the wonderful work that uh, we do. And um, if you're in a position to, to support that work, that's fantastic also. But uh, most importantly, anybody who needs help can go there also. That's terrific. I'm glad you told me that. It's a resource. It's a solution. And you know what? I'll put that um, in, on social media too so people can see it there also when we advertise this episode because it's important that it's available. So Awesome. Yeah, I think Thank it's you. terrific. Um, I know we're wrapping up on time, but real quick – Tell me about your books and your workshops and what people can do to get in touch with you. Sure. So my first book is called My Life After Hate, uh, self-published. Uh, people can find out more about that at mylifeafterhate.com. My second book uh, was co-authored with a, a brilliant man named Pardeep Singh Kalika, who is uh, a dear friend and brother of mine. He's also a colleague at Parents for Peace and one of the mental health professionals who is available to, to help people who need it. And I met Party after his father and six other people were murdered by a guy who was from the gang that I helped to start. And Party sought me out to try to uh, just make sense of, of this horrific situation. And uh, from that tragedy, Party and I developed a really beautiful friendship and brotherhood. And we wrote a book together along with a great co-author named Robin Gabby Fisher. And that book is called The Gift of Our Wounds. And people can find out more about it at giftofourwounds.com. Both of those websites, uh, the contact goes straight to me if, if anybody wants to get a hold of me. Uh, you, you can also um, email arno at A-R-N-O-A-R-R, the number four, dot com. I, I do do uh, workshops uh, for community orgs and businesses. I've, I've spoken in, um, <laughs> around the world and everywhere from Harvard to kindergarten to Buddhist temples and, and synagogues and uh, mosques and churches. And, and the Jason um, Alexander Show. You I did. I did a podcast with Jason with Alexander. Jason Alexander was, of Seinfeld, Yeah. That was one of my greatest moments. I've also spoken with Wayne Knight. I, I hope to meet more members of the cast someday. Um, and I, I've done corporate stuff for Google, Facebook, Twitter, uh, TikTok, um, Wells Fargo, Progressive Insurance, uh, also or so to a big, uh, well-known businesses. And I, I'm just uh, really excited to help uh, people and organizations. Um, heal and, and really be the best versions of themselves that they can be. Well, we are sorry that you had to go through the journey, but we are glad that you are here to help, Arno. That's the most important thing. So Thanks, Holly. I, I always say nobody is happier about it than I am. Good. <laughs> but I, I, I really appreciate that. I, I, I really uh, want to help other people realize that, that kind of joy and, and gratitude. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Arno. 
That is a wrap. You answered all the questions beautifully, and I'm glad to have had you on this episode today. All right, GTFO listeners, we are done. That was episode five. Can't wait to talk to everyone again soon on GTFO. Thank you for joining me today on the GTFO podcast. This is Holly Kaplan. To connect with me for confidence coaching or speaking engagements, please connect with me at hollykaplan.com or find me on Instagram at gtfo underscore podcast. Thanks.